Chapter 5 of The Defiant Agents This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by R.J. Davis The Defiant Agents by Andre Norton Chapter 5 There was one horse, unshod but ridden. It came here from the plains, and it had been ridden hard, going lame. There was a rest here, maybe shortly after dawn. Travis sorted out what they had learned by a careful examination of the ground. Nalikli Dayu and Najinta, Tashe, watched and listened as if the coyotes as well as the boy could understand every word. There is that also. Tasha indicated the one trace left by the unknown writer, an impression blurred as if some attempt had been made to conceal it. Small and light, the writer is both, also in fear, I think. We follow? Tasha asked. We follow, Travis assented. He looked to the coyotes, and as he had learned to do, thought out his message. This trail was the one to be followed. When the writer was sighted, they were to report back if the Apaches had not yet caught up. There was no visible agreement. The coyotes simply vanished through the squall of grass. Then there are others here, Tasse said as he and Travis began their return to the foothills. Perhaps there was a second ship. That horse, Travis said, shaking his head. There was no provision in the project for the shipping of horses. Perhaps they have always been here. Not so, to each world its own species of beast. But we shall know the truth when we look upon that horse and its rider. It was warmer this side of the mountains, and the heat of the plains beat at them. Travis thought that the horse might well be seeking water if allowed his head. Where did he come from? And why had his rider gone in haste and fear? This was rough, broken country, and the tired, limping horse seemed to have picked the easiest way through it, without any hindrance from the man with him. Travis spotted a soft patch of ground with a deep-set impression. This time there had been no attempt at erasure. The boot track was plain. The rider had dismounted and was leading the horse, yet he was moving swiftly. They followed the tracks around the bend of a shallow cut and found Nalikiyagu, waiting for them. Between her forefeet was a bundle still covered with smears of soft earth, and behind her were drag marks from a hole under the overhang of a bush. The coyote had plainly just disinterred her find. Travis squatted down to examine it, using his eyes before his hands. It was a bag made of hide, probably the hide of one of the split horns by its color, and the scrapes of long hair which had been left in a simple decorative fringe along the bottom. The sides had been laced together neatly by someone used to working in leather. The closing flap lashed down tightly with braided thong loops. As the Apache leaned closer to it, he could smell a mixture of odors, the hide itself, horse, wood smoke, and other scents strange to him. He undid the fastenings and pulled out the contents. There was a shirt with long full sleeves of a gray wool undyed from the sheep, then a very bulky short jacket 
which after fingering it doubtfully, Travis' decide was made of felt. It was elaborately decorated with highly colorful embroidery, and there was no mistaking the design. A heavy-antlered Terran deer in mortal combat with what might be a puma. It was bordered with a geometric pattern of beautiful, oddly familiar work. Travis smoothed it flat over his knee and tried to remember where he had seen its like before. A book? An illustration in a book. But which book? When? Not recently, and it was not a pattern known to his own people. Twisted into the interior of the jacket was a silk-like scarf, clear, light blue, the blue of Terra's cloudless skies on certain days, so different from the yellow shield now hanging above them. A small case of leather with silhouetted designs cut from hide and affixed to it, designs as intricate and complex as the embroidery on the jacket, art of a high standard. In the case, a knife and spoon, the bowl and blade of dull metal, the handles of horn carved with horse's head, the tiny wide-open eyes set with glittering stones. Personal possessions dear to the owner, so that when they must be abandoned for flight, they were hidden with some hope of recovery. Travis slowly repacked them, trying to fold the garments into their original creases. He was still puzzled by those designs. Who? Tosse touched the edge of the jacket with one finger, his admiration for it plain to read. I don't know, but it is of our own world. That is a deer, but the horns are wrong, Tosse agreed. And the puma is very well done. The one who made this knows animals well. Travis pushed the jacket back into the bag and laced it shut, but he did not return it to the hiding place. Instead, he made it a part of his own pack. If they did not succeed in running down the fugitive, he wanted an opportunity for closer study, a chance to remember just where he had seen that picture before. The narrow valley where they had discovered the bag sloped upward, and there were signs that their quarry found the ground harder to cover. The second discard lay in open sight, again a leather bag which Nalikiyu sniffed and then began to lick eagerly, thrusting her nose into its flaccid interior. Travis picked it up, finding it damp to the touch. It had an odd smell, like that of sour milk. He ran a finger around inside, brought it out wet. Yet this was neither water bag nor canteen, and he was completely mystified when he turned it inside out, for though the inner surface was wet, the bag was empty. He offered it to the coyote, and she took it promptly. Holding it firmly to the earth with her forepaws, she licked the surface, though Travis could see no deposit which might attract her. It was clear that the bag had once held some sort of food. Here they rested, Tassay said, not too far ahead now. But now they were in a kind of country where a man could hide in order to check on his back trail. Travis studied the terrain and then made his own plans. They would leave the plainly marked trace of the fugitive, strike out upslope to the east, and try to parallel the other's route. In that maze of rock outcrops and wood copses, there was tricky going. Naliki Adu gave a last lick to the bag as Travis signaled her. She regarded him, 
then turned her head to survey the country before them. At last she trotted on, her buff coat melting into the vegetation. With the genta, she would scout the quarry and keep watch, leaving the men to take the longer way around. Travis pulled off his shirt, folding it into a packet and tucking it beneath the folds of his sash belt, just as his ancestors had always done before a fight. Then he cast his pack sentosage. As they began the stiff climb, they carried only their bows, the quivers slung on their shoulders, and the long-bladed knives. But they flitted like shadows, and like the coyotes, their red-brown bodies became indistinguishable against the bronze of the land. They should be, Travis judged, not more than an hour away from sundown, and they had to locate the stranger before the dark closed in. His respect for their quarry had grown. The unknown might have been driven by fear, but he held a good pace and headed intellectually for just the kind of country which would serve him best. If Travis could only remember where he had seen the like of that in Broderick, it had a meaning which might be important now. Dussay slipped behind a wind-gnarled tree and disappeared. Travis stooped under a line of bush limbs. Both were working their way south using the peak ahead as an agreed landmark, pausing at intervals to examine the landscape for any hint of a man and horse. Travis squirmed snake fashion into an opening between two rock pillars and lay there, the westering sky hot on his bare shoulders and back, his chin propped on his forearm. In the band holding back his hair, he had inserted some concealing tufts of wiry mountain grass the ends of which drooped over his rugged features. Only seconds earlier he had caught that fragmentary warning from one of the coyotes. What they sought was very close. It was right down there. Both animals were in ambush, awaiting orders. And what they found was familiar, another confirmation that the fugitive was Terran, not native to Topaz. With searching eyes, Travis examined the site indicated by the coyotes. His respect for the stranger was raised another notch. In time, either he or Torsay might have sighted that hideaway without the aid of the animal scouts. On the other hand, they might have failed, for the fugitive had truly gone to earth, using some pocket or crevice in the mountain wall. There was no sign of the horse, but a breast here and there had been pulled out of place, the scars of their removal readable when one knew where to look. Odd, Travis began to puzzle over what he saw. It was almost as if whatever pursuit the stranger feared would come not at ground level, but from above. The precautions the stranger had taken were to veil his retreat to the reaches of the mountainside. Had he expected any trailer to make a flanking move from up that slope where the Apaches now lay? Travis's teeth nipped the weathered skin of his forearm. Could it be that at some time during the day's journeying their fugitive had doubled back, having seen his trackers? But there had been no traces of any such scouting, and the coyotes would surely have warned them. Human eyes and ears could be tricked, but Travis trusted the senses of Najinta and Nikiakadu far above his own. No, he did not believe that the rider expected the Apaches but the man did expect someone or something which would come upon him from the heights. 
the heights? Travis rolled his head slightly to look at the upper reaches of the hills above him, with suspicion. In their own journey across the mountains and through the pass, they had found nothing threatening. Dangerous animals might roam there. There had been some paw marks, one such trail the coyotes had warned against. But the type of precautions the stranger had taken were against intelligent, thinking beings, not against animals more likely to track by scent than by sight. And if the stranger expected an attack from above, then Travis and Tose must be alert. Travis analyzed each feature of the hillside, setting in his mind a picture of every inch of ground they must cross. Just as he had won daylight as an ally before, so now he was willing to wait for the shadows of twilight. He closed his eyes in a final check, able to recall the details of the hiding place, knowing that he could reach it when the conditions favored, without mistake. Then he edged back from his vantage point and raised his fingers to his lips, made a small angry chittering, three times repeated. One of the species inhabiting these heights that they had noted earlier was a creature about as big as the palm of a man's hand, resembling nothing so much as a round ball of ruffled feathers, though its covering might actually have been a silky, fluffy fur. Its short legs could cover ground at an amazing speed, and it had the bold imprudence of a creature with few natural enemies. This was its usual cry. Tosay's hand waved, Travis on to where the younger man had taken position behind the bleached trunk of a fallen tree. He hides, Tosay whispered. Against trouble from above, Travis added his own observation. But not us, I think. So Tosay had come to that conclusion, too. Travis tried to gauge the nearness of twilight. There was a period after the passing of Topaz's sun when the dusky light played odd tricks with shadows. That would be the first time for their move. He said as much, and Tosay nodded eagerly. They sat with their backs to a boulder, the tree trunk serving as a screen, and chewed methodically on ration tablets. There was energy and substance in the tasteless squares which would support men, even though their stomachs continued to demand the satisfaction of fresh meat. Taking turns, they dozed a little. But the last banners of Topaz's sun were still in the sky when Travis judged the shadow's cover enough. He had no way of knowing how the stranger was armed. Though he used a horse for transportation, he might well carry a rifle and the most modern Terran sidearms. The Apache's bows were little use for infighting, but they had their knives. However, Travis wanted to take the fugitive unharmed if he could. There was information he must have, so he did not even draw his knife as he started downhill. When he reached a pool of violet dusk at the bottom of the small ravine, Nagenta's eyes regarded him knowingly. Travis signaled with his hand and brought out what would be the coyote's part in the surprise attack. The prick-eared silhouette vanished. Uphill, the chitter of a tough fur sounded twice. Tasse was in position. A howl, wailing, sobbing was heard, one of the keening songs of the embryo. Travis darted forward. He heard the nicker of a frightened horse, a clicking which could have marked the pawing of hoof on gravel, saw the brush hiding the stranger's hold tremble, 
a portion of it fall away. Travis sped on, his moccasins making no sound on the ground. One of the coyotes gave tongue for the second time, the eerie wailing rising in a yapping which echoed from the rocks above them. Travis poised for a dive. Another section of those artfully heaped branches had given way, and a horse reared, its upflung head plainly marked against the sky. A blurred figure weaved back and forth before it, trying to control the mount. The stranger had his hands full, certainly no weapon drawn, this was it. Travis leaped. His hands found their mark, the shoulders of the stranger. There was a shrill cry from the other as he tried to turn in the Apache's hold, to face his attacker. But Travis bore them both on, rolling almost under the feet of the horse, sliding downhill, the unknown's writhing body pinned down by the Apache's weight and his clasp, tight as an iron grip, about the other's chest and upper arm. He felt his opponent go limp, but was suspicious enough not to release that hold, for the heavy breathing of the stranger was not that of an unconscious man. They lay so, the unknown still tight in Travis's hold, but no longer fighting. The Apache could hear Tasse soothing the horse with the purring words of a practiced horseman. Still the stranger did not resume the struggle. They could not lie in this position all night. Travis thought with a wide twist of amusement. He shifted his hold and got the lightning-quick response he had expected. But it was not quite quick enough, for Travis had the other's hands behind his back, cupping slender, almost delicate wrists together. "'Throw me a cord,' he called to Tasse. The younger man ran up with an extra bow cord, and in a moment they had bonds on the struggling captive. Travis rolled her catch over, reaching down for a fistful of hair to pull the head into a patch of clearer light. In his grasp that hair came loose, a braid unwinding. He grunted as he looked down into the stranger's face. Dust marks were streaked now with tear runnels, but the gray eyes which turned fiercely on him said that their owner cried more in rage than fear. His captive might be wearing long trousers tucked into curved-toed boots and a loose overblouse, but she was certainly not only a woman, but a very young and attractive one. Also, at the present moment, an exceedingly angry one. And behind that anger was fear, the fear of one fighting hopelessly against insurmountable odds. But as she eyed Travis now, her expression changed. He felt she had expected another captor altogether, and was astounded at the sight of him. Her tongue touched her lips, moistening them, and now the fear in her was another kind, the wary fear of one facing a totally new and perhaps dangerous thing. Who are you? Travis spoke in English, for he had no doubt that she was Terran. Now she sucked in her breath with a gasp of pure astonishment. Who are you? She parroted his question in a marked accent. English was not her native language, he was sure. Travis reached out, and again his hands closed on her shoulders. She started to twist and then realized he was merely pulling her up to a setting position. Some of the fear had left her eyes, an intent interest taken its place. "'You are not sons of the Blue Wolf,' she stated in her heavily accented speech. Travis smiled. "'I am the fox, not the wolf,' he returned. 
and the coyote is my brother. He snapped his fingers at the shadows, and the two animals came noiselessly into sight. Her gaze widened even more at Najita, Nalikia de you, and she deduced the bond which must exist between her captor and the beast. This woman is also of our world, Tassay spoke in Apache, looking over their prisoner with frank interest, only she is not of the people. Sons of the Blue Wolf? Travis thought again of the embroidery designs on the jacket. Who had called themselves by that picture skew title? Where? And when in time? What do you fear, daughter of the Blue Wolf? he asked. And with that question he seemed to touch some button activating terror. She spun black her head so that she could see the darkening sky. The flyer. Her voice was muted as if more than a whisper could carry to the stars just coming into brilliance above them. They will come, tracking. I did not reach the inner mountains in time. There was a despairing note in that which cut through to Travis, who found that he too was searching the sky, not knowing what he looked for or what kind of menace it promised, only that it was real danger. This concludes the reading of Chapter 5.